Uh, as Dave said, my name is Adam Rowe. I'm the student ministry pastor at our Wilmington campus, and uh, I'm, I'm so excited, honestly, to be here with you this morning. I've always, always loved the Christmas season. There's just something about it. I, I, I love the, the lights and the music and the food and all these things, but, but I feel like there's something deeper about it. it. It's the meaning that it brings to us and what God did that makes it such a special time for me. So it's something I've been thinking about and I've been praying about this morning for a long time, and I really, I feel strongly that God has something for us as a community, both here, you know, in this room and on our campuses, and if you're watching online, and, and even if you're watching, you know, somewhere in the future catching up, like God is there, he is with you. And I think he has something specific for many of us today. I think he has a message of freedom and of hope for you. But what we're doing, this right here, this is not meant to be just a one-way street. We don't come to church and then just hear people play music and listen to people speak. We are the church. Amen? Amen. We're meant to do this together as a family. We worship by lifting all of our voices together to our God. We worship by how we love one another, how we take care of each other, how we welcome each other, how we write our name tags and learn each other's names together. Uh, we worship when we open the scriptures and we read through them. And then we worship as we, as a community, open those scriptures in this moment and wrestle with them together. So my hope for you this morning and my challenge for you this morning is I'm going to invite just a little bit of participation. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment and ask that the Holy Spirit would be here and that he would speak to us. And as I do, if you feel like you are here and you're hoping that God will speak to you, you're hoping that you'll hear something, that we will discover something together. I'm just going to ask that you stand. Something about, about standing, something about moving our posture, it just kind of engages us in the moment. And, and if you want, you could even, you could take your hands and open them up in front of you. This, there's nothing magical about it. It's just a, a physical reminder of a spiritual reality of openness. And then if you want to go this far, which a number of you just did, if you hear something in my prayer or you hear something throughout the message that you agree with or that you say, yes, Lord, yes, like respond, feel free. You can say here on the campuses, I know Wilmington Student Ministry, you guys are watching in the Cove and I miss you guys, like scream at the screen right now, do whatever you want. I don't care, but say something, say amen, say let it be so, which is what amen really means. All right. Let's do this together. If you want, you can stand and I will pray over us. Lord God, you are so good to us. You are continually and always good to us. And this morning we come and we claim that as a community. We say you are good. You are our God and you are our Savior. And Lord, we thank you. We come together thankful to be a community, a community across so many different places, a family. We thank you for everything that you have given us. And Lord, in this time in our, our history as a nation and as a people where there's so much uncertainty, Lord, we turn to you, the God of hope. And Lord, we ask that you would bring hope into our lives. We ask that you would pour your spirit out on us and that that hope would pour out from us into our neighbors and our friends and our family. We ask that you would let us be changed. Lord, we are a grateful people. We are a thankful people because we have you as our God. So Lord, please speak to us this morning. And then speak through us to those around us in the name of Jesus, in his name, amen. Let it be so. Her heart, her heart pounded in her chest and her, her breath actually caught in her throat as she crouched as low as she could, trying to make herself invisible in, behind this bush. 
She had known, like, the, the moment it happened that something was wrong. Both her and her husband had known that something was wrong. And, and they had tried to cover themselves with leaves, but it, it hadn't really worked. As they crouched in the bushes, they were both completely aware of their state of undress and of their uncomfortable spot. As the day had gone on, they had actually felt their anxiety grow, building and building and building. And as the cool of the day approached, and as they heard his footsteps, without thinking, the two of them had fled into the woods and found themselves hiding. But she knew as she crouched here and as she was uncomfortable and as her breath and heart pounded within her, she knew that it was only a matter of time, that her shame would be brought out, and she was terrified that everyone would know. This story comes to us from Genesis chapter 3. And it's an amazing story. And I know from a lot of conversations that I've had across Grace Chapel, across our campuses, I know we have a variety of views in our congregation about the, the, the purpose behind Genesis. We have kind of on one side, there's those of us that think, okay, this is actual, literal, historic narrative. This is actually how it happened point for point. And then on the other side, we have people that say, well, you know, it's, it's narrative, but I think it's more meant to be theological teaching through narrative of who we are and our, our kind of relationship to God and creation. And Pastor Brian reminded us just, I don't know, three, four weeks ago, that no matter where we fall on that spectrum, that we can all sit at the same table and we can all be in the same congregation. Because we recognize that no matter what this story was intended for, there are incredibly important theological truths that I believe strongly they set the foundation for the rest of our story. And interestingly enough, I think they also set the foundation for this story, for Advent. The, the writer opens up the book with two chapters that are beautiful. They, they tell about creation, about the world that God made, about all the things he put in it, and he's repeatedly saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then it actually, it climaxes with our creation. Man and woman created in the image of God, co-kind of caretakers of creation, and he says, it is very, very good. But then in chapter three, the story turns. There's this dramatic turn when they decide to go their own way. They, they decide that maybe what God has said isn't, isn't true and they're gonna try something else. And when they rebel, that close relationship is broken as so many of us understand in our own lives when we go our own way. And instantly, these two things happen to them. They look down, and they realize for the first time that they're naked, and then that crushing weight of shame lands on their shoulders. This is what the writer of Genesis tells us. It says, At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. There's, there's almost this sense when you look at them, um, like beforehand, they'd been almost kind of like children. And by that, I, I don't mean intellectually or emotionally. I just mean, like, okay, my son, he's a year and a half, and his favorite way to be dressed is naked. <laughs> right? Any other, any other parents were met? Like, like if, he, he like tries to kick me when I'm putting on pants, and he's like always fighting to try to take his shirt off. And, and if you let him run around in the diaper, he will pull the diaper off, and then he will run, like, screaming through the house. And I'm like, no, don't pee on anything. <laughs> right? He has, he would walk in here. He would walk right down that aisle. He wouldn't care. <laughs> he has no shame. Yet. <laughs> and I know, I know as a father that there's a moment coming where he will experience shame for the first time. 
And, and I'm trying, I'm doing everything I can to avoid it. I'm desperate to avoid it, but I know that it's going to happen because it happens to every one of us. This is kind of what's happening in this story. I mean, imagine for a moment, imagine you're an adult. Like, we kind of build up to this as kids. We figured out this and that. But imagine for an adult, you've never experienced shame in your entire life, and then it hits you all at once. What do you think you would do? I I would probably do exactly what they did. I would probably run and hide. And this is what it says. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And what follows is this fascinating discussion between God and his shame-ridden children. The writer of Genesis tells it like this. Then the Lord God called to them and he said, where are you? He, this is Adam, replied, I heard you walking in the garden and so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And so God kind of has this leading question here. Who told you you were naked, he said. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Now, before we get too judgmental here about what they do next, they do, I think, exactly and instinctively what every single one of us does in this situation. They shift the blame. The man says this. He said, it was the woman who you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. It's like this very complex story. Like it was her and you gave her to me and somehow there was fruit in my mouth. Like I, I, I don't really know. I'm not, I don't know how it happened. And in doing so, he not only throws her under the bus, but even throws God himself under the bus. So the Lord then turns to the woman. And again, kind of a leading parent question. What have you done, he asks. And she does the same thing. She shifts the blame. She says, the serpent deceived me, and that's why I ate it. I mean, how, come on, if we're honest, how often have we all done that? How often have I done that, right? Something happens, and I'm like, oh, it wasn't me from, you know, from the time we were kids. Like, oh, he hit me first. <laughs> and as we get to be adults, we get better at it. We instinctively, like, kind of start working and shifting. We push the blame, and we think, like, if I can just, like, nobody has to know. If I can just fix this thing in myself before anybody finds out, it'll be okay, and yet often we fail at it. But, but what's fascinating here is when God responds, he doesn't respond in anger. Watch, watch what he does. He actually, interesting enough, he curses the serpent for deceiving them. And then a little bit later on in the story, he actually curses the ground and he says it's going to be a lot harder. But when he turns to his son and his daughter, to Adam and Eve, he speaks of consequences And then he speaks of hope. I've been thinking about this theme all week long. And it reminded me of something that just a couple months ago, back in October, in a a moment of chaos in our house with guests coming over and food coming out of the oven and dogs running around and children and all of that, our, our son Truman climbed up into a chair, reached up onto the dinner table, and pulled a hot cup of tea off and into his lap. And it was miserable. He burnt part of his thigh, he burnt part of his hand, and we had to you know, take him in and get him seen. And, and luckily, my wife has a cousin who's a pediatric nurse who just, you know, God and God's plan was there that day with us. And over the next weeks and months, we had to take care of this. We had to wrap it, we had to put ointments on it, we had to change it regularly, we had to do all of these things. And none of this pro- process for him was fun, 
and none of it was painless. But as a father, I didn't look at him and say, like, you know, listen, this is your fault. Like, what, what were you thinking doing this, right? No, but, but I was honest, right? I, I had to say, like, listen, buddy, I promise we're going to get this over as quickly as we can. But we have to do this thing. It's going to be a little uncomfortable. I, I understand that, but it's, it's better. You're going to heal. We have to do this thing. And this is what God is doing here. He's doing the same thing. He's saying, guess what? Life is going to be difficult. There are things, there are consequences to our actions. But then he immediately speaks of hope. We don't have time to to break down this entire chapter this morning. But I want to point out one kind of critical piece. It comes from Genesis 3, 15. And right in front of Adam and Eve, with them standing here, God is speaking to the serpent so that they can overhear. And this is what he says. I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head. He's speaking to the serpent. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. There's a different translation. The NIV actually says this. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So let me ask you a question. What what situation out there can you imagine where somebody gets their foot hurt and their head hurt at the same time? Like either there's somebody's trying to headbutt, headbutt you in the foot, right? Or somebody's getting like kicked in the head. So this is like a serious thing that God is saying. He's saying right in front of Adam and Eve to the serpent, he's saying someone is coming. I am promising you this and you will get to hurt him, but he will crush you. It's this, this moment of beautiful promise of hope and restoration before he even speaks of consequence. It's what's referred to, we'll put it up on the screen here, it's called the Proto-Evangelium, the very first kind of promise. Say this to your friend, it just sounds good. Say somebody next to you, Proto-Evangelium. Don't you just feel smarter? (laughs) Proto-Evangelium, it's not a word I've used very often before today. So, it's this first hint The first hint in scripture that God is going to do something, that he's going to move this story forward. This first hint of this promise and reassurance of hope and salvation. And it's a promise that we desperately needed. Because from this point on, the story just goes downhill fast. There's deceit, there's murder, there's like all sorts of like horrible things that happen. There's this flood, there's this breaking apart of people groups at Babel. And then this man appears, this man named Abraham. And God kind of picks him. God says, you are going to be my guy. And through you and through your descendants, I will bless the whole world. And Abraham does. He has all of these kids and all of these descendants, and they raise up kind of into this, this whole nation, but eventually they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And so God raises up this other rescuer, this guy named Moses, this guy that doesn't even want the job, and God kind of says, like, here you go, which is, which is what he does to a lot of us. He says, I've got something important for you. And so he raises up Moses, and he sends Moses in, and through all these miracles and all this incredible stuff, he frees the people. And they find themselves wandering the desert for 40 years before they finally enter the promised land and find where they're going. But the people, they forget God. They forget him all the time, which is kind of how I still am today. They forget him and they find themselves like following other gods and doing other things. And they find themselves repeatedly conquered by other nations. And so God raises up all of these people. We call them judges. 
And each judge comes in and he fixes it, he rescues them, and he, he brings them to this kind of new place of, of independence and hope. And then when they die, the people kind of cycle back in. It was probably my favorite book in the Bible growing up as a, as a young boy, because it's like all swords and fighting and awesome stuff. It's an awesome book. Boys, go read it. Anybody, go read it. But it's a cycle where they just constantly are like being raised up and then falling again. So God, God tries something different. The people ask for kings. And so he raises up kings, and the kings are supposed to be his voice. They're supposed to protect the people. They're supposed to lead them into righteousness. And some of them do, but a lot of them don't. And all through, all through this process, he's been raising up these other people. They're called prophets. And these prophets speak with God's voice to the people. They're supposed to give them words of hope and meaning and belonging, and they speak all of this to the people. But eventually, they find themselves in idolatry again. Eventually, they find themselves in exile again. Eventually, they find themselves captive by another nation again. And waiting. And they wait. For 400 years, they wait. For 400 years, there's no judges, there are no kings, there are no prophets, there's no word from God. I grew up as a huge Red Sox fan. Anybody else? Huge, amen, I like that, amen. My, my parents had this friend and she had some corporate seats or something and she didn't really like baseball, so we lucked out because we'd get to use them every once in a while and they were Red Sox dugout seats, like right here. And now as an adult, when I go and I sit way in like the last seat in the bleachers, I always look and say like, oh man, I took that for granted. But we would sit right there against the bleachers and I would cheer for my team and I loved baseball and I loved it. But like most other Red Sox fans, I expected them to lose. Always good enough to make it to the playoffs and then lose to those Yankees. Right? After 86 years, we kind of, we'd come to expect it. And in 2003, October, I was a senior in college. And I, I remember so clearly, I was so excited. Like, this was the year we were going to do it. We had actually, it was game seven against the Yankees. It was like poetic justice. And we knocked Roger Clemens out in the fourth inning. And we had the game at hand. And then at the very end, who hit the home run? Anybody remember? Aaron Boone. I remember I, was, I, felt, I felt so sad. I drove home. I was so sad. And yet I wasn't at all surprised. <laughs> that was what it meant to be a Boston sports fan at that time. 86 years of losing and we'd come to expect it. What would we have done with 400? And for 400 years, there's, there's no word from God. There's no prophets. There are no judges. There are no kings. There is no word from God. The people just wait. And there's silence. And then finally God speaks. First to this man named Zechariah, who we'll hear about a little bit later in the series, but then to this young woman named Mary. And this is what we're told. There's a, a trained doctor and historian. His name was Luke. And he went and interviewed all of the people involved, and he wrote up this letter for us that we call Luke. It says this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Now, Mary is understandably surprised by this. 
There's three different main reasons. One, she was young. Two, she was poor. And and third, she was female. And for all of these reasons, everybody in her culture would not have expected God to come and work through a person like her. So it says this, confused and disturbed. Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. The silence had been broken. This long wait, the one who'd been promised so long ago, is finally coming. And Mary asks the rather obvious question. Mary says to the angel, but how can this happen, for I am a virgin? Now, I think because of our cultural lens that we view the world through, like this, this whole thing we're told our whole lives, like newer is better, newer is better, that thing you bought last year is trash, buy the new thing this year. Like we have this sense sometimes that whatever you know, happened in the olden times, like people, they used to just buy things, any crazy story, like hook, line, and sinker. But Mary clearly has some questions about this. I actually, I sat in with our seventh grade boys small group. Hi again to the Wilmington group. I sat in with our seventh grade boys last week and they were recapping the story of Christmas to us. And one of the boys, a 12 year old, told this part of the story and it was priceless. It was awesome. He was like, so there's this angel and he comes and he says to Mary, like, uh, you're gonna have a baby even though you're, um, uh, um, um, you know, and, and then he's, <laughs> and then he's like, and then Mary's like, well, how can this be since I'm a, um, uh, uh, he's like looking at his friends for help and they're out, nobody will look at him, you know, <laughs> uh, you, you know, <laughs> yeah, our middle schoolers understand that something is weird here and Mary does too. So she says, how can this happen? And the angel just says this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby born will be holy. He'll be called the Son of God. What's more, your cousin Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and it is now in her sixth month. And then he says this, this beautiful line that I want us to catch. For the word of God will never fail. Amen. Amen. The one who was promised all those years, all those generations ago, the one from Genesis 3.15, the one that's promised all throughout the Hebrew scriptures is finally coming. It's this incredible moment for the word of God will never fail. I mean, imagine, imagine Mary's surprise at hearing this news, her joy. Uh, Imagine 400 years of silence and finally God speaks. Imagine knowing the whole history of your people, how you have tried over and over and over again, and you have always somehow managed to fail, and you feel like, how is this ever going to work? And finally, he's here. God's promise of rescue, his kernel of hope is approaching, and it was promised at the very beginning. That long-awaited and long-promised rescue is finally approaching. And Mary responds beautifully. She says this, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything that you've said about me come true. She basically says, let it be so. 
there's this beautiful symmetry to the work of God here, to his choice, right? You have Eve, the mother of humanity, and her story comes full circle in Mary, her daughter. There's a beautiful painting by Sister Grace Remington. It's a it's kind of a modern painting today, and, and I found it, and I just love this, because on the one side here on the left, you have Eve, and Eve is downcast. Her head is down. Her eyes are fixed upon Mary's belly. And that snake is wrapped around both of her legs, almost like it's trying to drag her to the ground. And on the other side, you have Mary, and she's holding one of Eve's hands to her belly, and she's taking the other, and she's lifting gently and tenderly. She's lifting her gaze. And she's almost absent-mindedly crushing the serpent underfoot. It's beautiful. The power of Advent comes from the pain of that long wait. We often, we look at the story of Advent as kind of this self-contained, like beginning with you know, Mary and the, the, the angel and this and that, and that it ends with the birth of Jesus. But no, like God has been at work leading up to this moment from the very beginning. He started this at the very start. And I don't know about you, but I know that I often struggle with the power of my past. I often feel like, like Eve here, like it's just whatever I've done, the things I've done, the hurts and the mistakes and the shame, like it just, like it holds me, it drags me down to the ground. And I don't know what pain or past regret or shame holds onto you, but I bet you when I talk about it, you can instantly come up with something. I do know, though, that the birth of Jesus proves that the word of God will never fail and that God has the power to set things right. I don't know if it's a, maybe a bad decision that you made at some point, that there's still, you think about it over and over again. If only I could go back. If only I could do this other thing. Or if it's a bad decision somebody else made, and it's still, the pain of it is still so fresh that it feels like it's still happening. I don't know if it's the loss of a loved one before their time or, or maybe the, the loss of a, a great relationship, some important relationship that you think over and over again. What, what could I have done to, to repair that? I, I don't know if you've just walked away from God and somehow you were drawn back in here today and you're wondering if he would ever speak to you again. The story of Advent is the story of God's incredible faithfulness to us as his people proved in miraculous fashion. It doesn't, it doesn't take away our hurts. It doesn't take away what happened in the past, but what it does is it introduces us to Jesus. The one who years later will take that, who will take our pain and our shame and our brokenness, who will take all of it, put it on his own shoulders and bring it to the cross. A man who repeatedly throughout his whole life came alongside broken and shame-filled people and lifted their gaze and spoke to them of a better and a brighter future with him. So here's, here's my challenge to you this morning. I think we as a people, we need to look back into our past and we need to ask God, like, where were you at work? In amidst of the pain, in amidst of the brokenness, in amidst, where were you at work? Because I promise you, he's been at work like he has been at work in this whole story so far. And as he highlights things, let's take note of them. Let's, let's make monuments in our lives to them. I love the line from Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It says this. It says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. This line, it comes from 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 7, verse 12. The Lord had given them his great victory, and it says this. 
Samuel took a stone and named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. I would always sing that line as a kid, right? And I'd wonder what it means. Like I knew Ebenezer Scrooge. I wasn't quite sure. Like it, was, it sounded nice. But it literally, it just means stone of help, right? He set up a stone of help, like a place where, where when people came by, they would say, at this place and at this time, God helped us. God was there. He rescued us. I mean, we do this thing all the time. And we still need Ebenezer's in our own life today because I have a tendency to forget. My, my dad brought this home to me a number of years ago. At this point, I was an intern at a church and I was going to seminary and I was making intern money and paying seminary money. So those that don't balance out too well. And I'd just been through like just one of the hardest years at that point in my life. All sorts of crazy stuff had happened. And, and then my car died. Like, died, died, wasn't coming back to life. And it felt like I'd like a kick in the gut. And I remember I was actually, I was living in a friend's home who'd had to move. This was uh, 2008, so the home was getting foreclosed on. It was just like a crazy, crazy situation. And I remember thinking to God, like, I, I don't even know what to do. I don't know how to get to class or work or anything. And all I could do was really pray about it. And before that sounds overly spiritual, I think it was more fatalistic. But I was like, I'm just going to have to pray about this thing. So, so I made my, my way to my seminary class. Somebody brought me, and our professor would always ask, you know, if we had any prayer requests. And, and so I said, oh, I told the story, and I had them pray about the car, and I I'd expected not much. And at the break, somebody comes up to me, and he says, hey, so my wife and I just bought a new car, and we gave our old car to our daughter, and her old car is like now our ranch car. And, you know, if you can get it to pass smog, this was in California, you can have it. And I, I, was, I remember I was shocked, absolutely, like, jaw on the floor, didn't know what to say. And before, before you get overly impressed, it was a 1986 Ford Bronco 2. <laughs> Isn't that the most beautiful car you've ever seen? I, oh, hey, man, I loved that car. You could give me, I don't even know, you could give me any car in the world, and I would still think, like, I missed the Bronco. I loved that car. It was just so special to me. And, and when I first got it, this is, this is the honest truth. No, no heat, which in California is like whatever, but no AC in the summer. That's pretty horrible. I learned to park in the shade and take showers when I got home. Um, the driver's side door would only operate with the key. The passenger's side door would only operate with the electronic locks. And this is, this is the truth, I swear. You can ask my wife or any of the students who drove around with me. The car would routinely shut off when you turned left. You, you could turn right all day, you're fine. But you turn left, it's about a 50-50 shot that halfway through the turn, the car just powers off. And it was a stick shift, so I'd throw it in neutral, I'd keep rolling, I'd turn it on. Like, the kids would look forward to it. They'd be like, left turn, left turn, oh! They loved it. It was old and it was beat up. It felt like the shocks were intended to make you feel the bounces worse than they should. I mean, the thing bounced all over, but I loved it. And it ran and it was such, like, just a beautiful thing that God had done. I, I remember I called my dad and I was telling him about it. And with laughter in his voice, he said, he said, Adam, if you don't believe that God loves you now, you never will. <laughs> and I feel like that line has stuck with me. That junky old beat up car, long gone, is an Ebenezer to me. I, I have this like prayer journal and I, I don't write in it all the time, but when something like that happens, I go and I try to write that down. 
because I have plenty of moments, these kind of dark nights of the soul or various times where I feel like, what is God doing? And I feel like maybe he isn't even there. And so I go back and I flip through and I say, oh yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, that's, oh, he did this. And I find my faith buoyed as I start to see all the things that God did in my past. We find hope that emerges out of our past and in spite of our past because of the birth of Jesus. God promised that he would send the Savior, and 2,000 years ago, he did. He has proved his faithfulness over and over and over, and if, if he was so faithful in the past, then he will be faithful in our present, and he will also be faithful in our future. Amen? Amen. And I don't know what you're carrying. I know you know it, and I know God knows it, and he knows that you're here. I don't know what you're carrying this day, what is weighing you down, what is wrapped around your leg, but God knows it, and he is in the business of setting you free from it. He knew you would be here today. He knew you would be sitting in your campus. He knew you would be watching at home. He knew, and he is ready for you. Our God is an amazing God, and I would love, we would love to introduce you to the one who can free you from that. His name is Jesus. And his birth changed everything, and it changed my life, and it can change yours. When we look into our past, we find that the God of hope is already at work in it before we ever knew. Because the word of God will never fail. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for giving me these words, something I've wrestled with all week, things that at times I thought, like, I don't know, like, is this, what is this? Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. You are so good to me and you are so good to us. Lord, we thank you for everything you've done in our lives. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the story of Eve and for Mary. We thank you for your faithfulness from generation to generation. Lord, I pray, I know there's a number of us in here. I know there's, there's so many of us who feel burdened, who feel held down. And Lord, I pray peace over them. I pray freedom. I pray that the name of Jesus would free them. Lord, bring the right people, bring the right conversations. Lord, bring them freedom in the name of Jesus and in his power. Amen.